All right. Well, we'll actually be starting this morning in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to do something a little unusual. And uh, this will be our new study for the new year. And uh, I got to confess, even as you're turning to Luke chapter 18, I really struggled with what study to do. Last time we were in the life of Christ, and uh, many of you, like me, enjoyed doing that, and uh, that was a lot of fun, and uh, we want, I wanted to do something new this year. So I'm going to flip your board around, and I'll come back to it. I won't erase anything by so doing. And uh, here is our new study. Our new study will be Words Every Christian Ought to Know. So each time we come together, we'll do a different word, Every Christian Ought to Know. And uh, there are a bunch of them. And as a church family, we've looked at some of these back in 2018. But I want to look at them from a different angle. And uh, we want to be able to define these words because they are important to our faith. And uh, the first word that we're going to be looking at together this morning is the word justification. Justification. By the way, you can probably start thinking of other words that we'll do in this series. Uh, We'll do propitiation, sanctification, adoption. Today we're looking at justification. Let's begin our reading in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. It says, And he spake unto them, Jesus did, unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. And two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto the heavens, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Anytime you begin a conversation with the word justification, anytime we could say since the years of the 1500s, I think our minds should hearken back to the story that unfolds in 1510. If you and I were able to get in a time machine and go back to the year 1510 and find ourselves in Rome and make our way to something called the Scala Sancta there, we would find a group of people perilously making their way up the Scala Sancta on their knees. Anybody know what the Scala Sancta was or is? The Scala Sancta, what's that, Paul? It's a huge stairway. It's a famous stairway that is said to be the stairs that Rome tradition says is the stairs upon which Pilate stood when Jesus Christ was on trial. The Roman Catholic Church makes that their tradition. And to this day, you can go visit in Rome the Scala Sancta. Anybody been to Italy or Rome? Anybody at all? One group? Anyone? Oh, you guys have. have you been, did you go there? I have, I, I have. I know the, the Van Lowe's are making a trip to Italy soon, and this is something that they have wanted to do for years, and they finally get a chance to do. But if you got in a time machine and went back to the year 1510, you would find these folks, just like you would still today, on their knees, crawling up. There are 28 steps 
that they would crawl, that they still do, and they crawl. And Rome tradition says that every stair, as you crawl up on your knees, that they would stop and pray a prayer, each one beginning with the words, Our Father. In the year 1510, there was a particularly religious monk who was going to do this journey and his continued effort to find God. And he has been a student at this point. He has not only been a very astute student, he has been the student now that has become a professor. He has been sent now to his second teaching seminary where he would be a professor of supposedly the word of God. He is still in his own pursuit of what that all means. And so in his journey to his second seminary, he stops at the Scala Sancta. And he was doing penance and he was seeking to find peace for his sins. And as he climbs that stairway, he is denying his sincerity. No one is denying his sincerity. He was desiring to know peace for God. He wanted to be justified. He has come to the point where at one point if he had actually traveled, of course, it's 1510, so on horseback, and he had seen a great lightning storm hit a tree in front of him from his own words. It scared him to death. And he cried out to God, basically, I'll commit my life to you. That's what thrust him into being a monk and into the study of the word of God. He so desperately wanted to be justified, he was willing to do anything. And so as he crawled up those stairs on that day, he reaches the final step. And as he does so, he assessed his progress. I'm looking back down the stairs that he's just crawled up so tirelessly. And his conclusion brought despair as he realized that there is, he is no better off at the top of the steps than he was at the bottom of the steps. And all the Our Fathers that he had recited didn't seem to help him. And it was then that the Spirit of God brought back to his memory, this is according to his own words, it was at the top of those stairs that the Spirit of God brings back to his memory a verse he had studied so often. One phrase stood out to him more than the rest. A phrase that in his mind, a student of the word at that time, it would have been in Latin. But that's, he had an understanding of Latin, so at least in that sense he had an understanding of this phrase. It was from Romans. Romans 1 verse 17. The just shall live by faith. Now the man at the top of the stairs in 1510, listening to the word of God, his life began to be changed from that moment forward. Because he realized the emptiness of human tradition wasn't working for him. And he realized that the word of God may have been the only key to unlocking the mysteries of God. And it thrust him into what would become a lifelong study based on a life-changing decision. Anybody know the man I'm speaking of? That is Martin Luther's story. That is how Martin Luther finally came to an understanding of God. Now, Luther wasn't changed from some penance he had done. There was no some magical, mystical way of crawling on your knees or quoting a prayer. Rather, Luther was changed because of the promise that God sealed into his heart and a verse that if you were to ask Martin, what's your life verse? He would have told you, my life verse is Romans 1, verse 17. The just shall live by faith. And the promise of justification has the power to radically change your life. And from that great realization on the Scala Sancta came the spark that ignited the flame that became the Protestant Reformation that spread throughout the whole world. 
And in some part, we are here today as heirs of the Protestant Reformation tradition from Martin Luther crying out, there has to be more than this. Luther is famous for saying this about justification. This is Luther's quote. He would say, justification, justification is the cornerstone, the cornerstone of Christianity. Justification is the cornerstone of of Christianity. And that was Luther's conclusion. The promise of justification forever changed Luther's life. And I believe the promise of justification forever changed yours as well. So, words every Christian ought to know. How's your vocabulary doing? (laughs) Can you define justification? If justification is the cornerstone of Christianity, to which I would say, yes, Luther's right. I can almost hear someone in their mind reciting the familiar Sunday school rhyme that they learned as a child. Justification means just as if I'd never sinned. You guys are pretty good. That's a good one. And while there is certainly some truth to that, justification as a truth of Scripture and a cornerstone for our faith is far deeper than a Sunday school adage. But that doesn't mean that Sunday school adage is not true or unhelpful. I think it's good. By the way, just as an aside... There was a time when churches, particularly in Sunday school departments, were unafraid and unashamedly careful in their clear doctrinal truths of Scripture to young children's hearts and minds. And somehow that all got replaced by glittering coloring pages somewhere along the way. We need to, as a church, and I'm glad we are, focus on doctrine with, at a young age. And even if it's simple as saying justification means just as if I'd never sinned, that's a good at least enough place to start. We can build off that. There is never too young an age once a child gets to an age of understanding where we cannot begin to teach them truth. We do that in classrooms. It's not like we say, well, they'll get math someday, right? Or we'll teach them multiplication when they're interested in it. Well, let, let me just tell you, as a young person myself, if my teachers waited till I was interested in school to teach me something, I wouldn't learn anything. And you probably were the same. But today, as we ask this question and answer it, we ask the, anxi- the question of the ancient patriarchs. Job would ask this in Job 9, verse 2. By the way, Job being the oldest book in the Bible, Job would ask, how can a man be justified? That's Job's question. It's the question of Job. It's the question of Luther. That's the life's really most important question. How can you be justified? And that is what we're going to seek to do today. So, with any real study of any truth, of any kind of words or vocabulary, if we're going to do vocabulary, where do you start? Definitions. So, number one... That doesn't work. Number one, let's begin, number one, with a definition. And we can use the Sunday school definition, uh, justif- as if I had never sinned. But justification is really a legal term. We use the word justification, or more often the word justify, to speak of a man justifying himself. And what we really mean is he has done something wrong. And he is going to offer some excuses to mitigate or somehow cause people to forget what he had done. And for us, to justify means to give an excuse for behavior or misconduct. 
And that is not the word justify means, what it, the word justify means in the Bible. And it, in the Bible, it is, a, it is a legal term. It is a forensic term. It's a term of a courtroom scene. It's not a colloquial term. I'll give you a couple quotes from some systematic textbooks. Leon Morris writes a big volume of systematics, and he, he defines it this way. Justification, Leon Morris says, is a legal term. It means a verdict of acquittal, end quote. A.H. Strong, in Strong's Concordance of the Bible, gives a different definition. He says, By justification we mean that the judicial act of God by which, on account of Christ, he declares that sinner to be no longer exposed to the penalty of the law, but now restored to favor, end quote. You justify someone when you declare them not guilty and innocent and righteous in the eyes of the Lord. It does not mean to make righteous. That's what it does not mean. Right? You say justification. Well, it does not mean make righteous. What it means instead, justification, it not, does not mean make righteous. It means to declare righteous. Now, words have meaning. Why is, what's the distinction there? If I said make righteous, first to declare righteous, why is it not this and why is it this? Why is it declare righteous, not make righteous? Words have meaning. Nancy? If it's make righteous, then we might have something to do with it. We might have something to do with it, certainly. Lori? Because we cannot be made righteous. We're sinful beings. We are still sinful beings. Yes? Well, she, she answered that because it, we were sinners. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if... If we were to say, when I'm saved, we use it, say, and we'll look at that as another word uh, in the words that Christians ought to know. But if I were to say I'm saved and I'm made righteous, would that not be discouraging if later on I sin? Yeah. All of a sudden I'm going to think, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm righteous. I shouldn't be doing that. No, it means to look at someone who is guilty and declare that they are now not guilty. The record has been wiped away. If you want a technical definition, I would give it to you this way. Justification is that divine miracle whereby God declares righteous the sinner who believes in Jesus. Herein lies what is such an important problem. You see, all of us stand before God with the same predicament. We are guilty. Romans 3 verse 10 says, There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of their way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Could God be any clearer than that? It's pretty clear. He is saying there's none righteous. Shortly after, he's going to say in Romans 3.23, all have sinned. You are guilty. The psalmist would say in Psalm 143 verse 2, in thy sight shall no man be living justified. Exodus 23, verse 7 says, I will not justify the wicked. He cannot excuse, God cannot excuse sin. So how's our vocabulary doing? Words make a difference, right? Same definition. We're not saying it makes righteous, but declares righteous. Paul? The uh, Christmas play. Yes. Oh, yes. Portrayed that exactly. That's very true. That is very true. The, The Christmas play was... Wasn't it titled Justified? Yeah. 
Yeah, and there was a song that did it and a story that went along with it. The Christmas play did a very good job of, of defining that. So if we're going to look at a word justification, we're going to say declare righteous. We need to start with the definition. And if the definition is declared to declare righteous, what then must I ask about that definition? What's a, what's a logical next follow-up? I would say, yeah, how is that possible, right? We can say the, the who and what. The who and what of justification. Because if we're not just, someone has to be our justifier. How does this all work? How is it going to be that the unjust can be declared just? Any good attorney will diligently prepare his client for a hearing. Information will be provided, questions will be asked, a summation will be assessed, all because an attorney is pressing for a verdict. Well, any good pastor recognizes that in a room, every single one of us will one day stand before the bar of heaven. We need to be prepared. Second Corinthians says in verse five, verse chapter five, verse twenty-one: We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what is done, whether it be good or whether it be good, bad. So, in preparation for that account, we need to consider carefully who and what. We need to be careful. How is this possible? How can we be justified? Well, only by God's grace, first of all. Only by God's grace. Romans 3 verse 24 is right after Romans 3 verse 23. That'll be the simplest thing that I say to you this morning. <laughs> Romans 3:23 says, "For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God." Romans 3:24 says, "Being justified freely by His grace." Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's not something you have to work up. It's not something that you do through your effort. Justification is reliant completely on the good grace of God. There are many common ideas of getting right with God that we see preached in our culture that are wrong. Mickey? Explain grace. Yeah, well, let's explain it by looking at the bad before we look at the good. Sometimes when you explain something, sometimes you can say, well, it's not this. Like we just did on this one. So here's two bad ways to explain grace. <laughs> so you can write it down as bad examples. We could say, number one, some will say, well, God will weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds. Well, let's think about that logically. Let's kind of logically break that down. Someone you love is murdered. Right? And they catch the killer. They find him guilty. And just when he's about to be sentenced, the killer says, wait, you should know before you sentence me that I've sold all my possessions and given them to the poor. I've also pledged my ongoing support to humanitarian crises. The rest of my life will be lived for other people's good. And the judge responds, let's see. That's two good deeds I'm counting on the board for you, sir. And one bad. You're free to go. Is that justice? Absolutely not. Of course not. Bad cannot be outweighed by good. That's not how that works. So it can't be that. Here's another way. Number one was a bad example. Well, God will weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds, which logically breaks down. Number two, I'll bring my good deeds to God. 
Well, this is a little different than the first idea, because here we think that God completely ignores our bad deeds. Like, as if to say, well, God doesn't really care. He's, he's up there in the sky, and you might do bad things, but he's only going to look at your report. It's like the, the student that takes a math exam, and uh, all the teacher wants to know is whether or not you got the number right at the end of it. But, of course, as you know, good math teachers actually don't always care about what number you got at the end. They want to see how you got there, right? I used to hate that when I was a, when I was a student. <laughs> But I understand now as an adult why they wanted to do that. But there's a problem thinking that God doesn't care about our bad stuff, isn't there? What's the problem with that? Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We are all unclean things and all our righteousness is filthy rags. There's two problems, really. Number one, God does care about our bad things. And number two, you don't get an audience before God because of those bad things. But the truth is, you cannot do anything to save yourself. It's not about you. It's all about God and what God has done. In his book, Saved from What? R.C. Sproul says this, and I love that title. Saved from What? He says, I'm afraid that the United States of America today, the prevailing doctrine of justification is not justification by faith alone. It is not even justification by good works or by a combination of faith and works. The prevailing notion of justification in our culture today is justification by death. All one has to do to be received in the everlasting arms of God is to die. That's all people think you need to know. You are not justified before God by coming to church or being baptized or giving money. These things count for nothing in way of justification. In fact, the proverb says there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. If we could answer R.C.'s Brol's question, as we look at words every Christian ought to know, what are we saved from? So, Paul's the most close, most correct. I thought that you're all wrong. He said, we're saved from the wrath of God. Now, it is correct still to say we're saved from sin and the penalty of sin. That is not incorrect. But truthfully, we are saved from God's wrath. That's what we're saved from. Who's the great tormentor of hell? God is. Think about that. God made it for the devil and his demons. Justification. So what is grace to come back? Grace is God's unmerited favor on your account to say you won't be punished for that sin. Who's the punisher of sin? God is the punisher of sin. So justification is available through grace, and only grace comes to us by God's works. Not your works. It's kind of a fuller fleshing out of grace, after all. Notice the important words Paul uses in Romans 3, verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Well, that's a big word. We're going to have to add that to our list of words. <laughs> through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Our justification came with a price and his name was Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood. He was buried. He rose from the dead. That through Jesus Christ, you could be justified, i.e. equals declared righteous in the sight of God. Whose works? Well, you could say God's works, but what member of the Trinity? Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left everything to follow Christ. That's the works of Christ. And justification is applied. How can I get it? By faith. It is applied by faith. Once again, justification is wholly apart from human effort. Romans 8 Verse, or 3, verse 28. We're still in Romans 3, but verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man, I've got this point right from Scripture, is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, what is the law a reference to in Romans 3? The Jewish law? Yeah, the, the laws of the Old Testament, right? The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. What God is telling us in this passage is that you aren't going to be justified by anything good that you do, no matter how good you are. And the reason that nobody's ever been good enough is that because no one's ever been justified. Do you know how many sins it takes to get you to hell? Just one. Remember James, chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, guilty of all of it. If you commit one sin and then are righteous for the rest of your life, That one sin is enough to send you to hell forever. Because it's enough to keep you out of heaven. Let's use another logical extreme. Heaven is holy. It's pretty much the definition of holiness. Holiness meaning what? There's another word we maybe ought to know. What is holiness? Perfect, right? Yep. Absence of sin, pure, all of those things. If God let one sin from one sinner into heaven, is heaven holy anymore? No. It's like having a, well, I've got a beautiful car with a wonderful windshield. There's just one crack that runs all the way across. But everywhere else, the glass is good. You probably need to replace that windshield if you've got a crack running all the way across there. Well, everything else is good. No, it needs to be replaced. But Romans 4, verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. God our Father. Here's Luther's conclusion, if we want to use back to Luther and his example. God our Father has made all things depend on faith, so that whoever has faith will have everything, and whoever does not have faith will have nothing. Luther was pretty bold in that declaration. Remember what he did? One of the more famous things that we celebrate every October 31st. You know what he did? He nailed those 95 Reeses to the wall, no, theses to the wall. By the way, just as a historical aside, that wouldn't have been shocking. The, the actual practice of nailing something to the door wasn't shocking. I think we, oftentimes we see even the famous picture of Luther nailing it to the, wall, to the doors of the cathedral, and then everybody's shocked that someone's nailing something to the door, and we think, oh man, I can't believe 
Well, you've got to remember, these, are, these would have been historically like the town billboards. It would not have been uncommon for people to hang things on those doors. So he was adding things to the doors that other people had already added there. So the shock was not nailing something to the door. The shock, what was nailed to the door, <laughs> what was actually stated. And actually, the, the, the outgrowth was not immediately what was nailed to the door. It wasn't like he nailed the door, people read it, and then within a few hours, everybody was shocked. What happened later is others of, we could maybe use the word Luther's disciples, picked up that and began to distribute it. It began to be reprinted and redistributed, and pretty soon it made its, all, its way all the way up to Rome, and people, Rome was pretty ticked. In fact, they asked him to recant and that backfired on them. When he asked them to recant, they asked him to appear before the diet of, anybody know what it was called? Worms, right? <laughs> uh, in Germany. And uh, he had to travel from where he was teaching to get up to the diet of worms. And it really backfired for, the, for Rome when they asked him to do that. They were going to bring him before him. They were going to read out all of what he's saying, primarily that the just can only live by faith. And they were going to read it out before him and make him recant in front of all this crowd. But in the process of his making his journey up there, everybody was so interested in what he had to say that they began to come and listen to him speak, even asking and imploring him to teach them more. And so he actually ended up tripling, even some estimates say quadrupling, the number of people who knew about what he was teaching. So by the time he got to the Diet of Worms after this journey, there, was, there were way more people in agreement with Luther than there were before he started. And some actually questioned, if they had never asked him to appear before the Diet of Worms, would you even know who Martin Luther was today? Because of how many people heard about it just in that journey. So it backfired on him. I, would, I just see the providence of God in that, quite frankly. And his argument was justification. I, I think most of us in this room, what we've already gone over right now is pretty basic. It's pretty basic Christianity. And it is, it, as Luther said, it's the foundation of our faith. But this is not a given, in, certainly even in our culture, but certainly then either. What then becomes, if, if this is the definition and this is how I get it, what is, number three, we could say, what is the result? What is the result? Or we could say the application of all of that. What does it look like if you are justified? And the first thing you know, if you've been justified, is you are forgiven. If you have been justified, you are forgiven. We could say you are completely forgiven. You are declared not guilty. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You can never be condemned by God. You can never be condemned by Satan for that matter. Or anybody else, including yourself. Many people struggle with a sense of false guilt in their spirit. Even within yourself. Romans 8, verse 33, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn us? It is Jesus Christ who died, yea, who rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God. What is he doing? Making intercession for us. If you're making a list of words we need to get to know, you can add intercession to that list. All right? And because you are forgiven... Who can condemn you? Can the devil condemn you? Nope. Can your friends condemn you? Can your enemies condemn you? Will God condemn you? Will Jesus condemn you? 
can you condemn yourself? You can try, but you can't even condemn yourself if you've been forgiven. That's what justification is. It's, it's as if you had never sinned. The record is wiped away. No wonder this is a central core doctrine to the Christian faith. Again, and I, maybe we can just tie a string. And, and I'm using an illustration. I don't often do this just to tie everything together. But I'm just going to go ahead and use Luther as our continued illustration. Anybody remember in history what initially caused Luther to get ticked about the Roman Catholic Church? Indulgences. Indulgences. The, the, the first thing that really caused Luther to get mad was indulgences. What were the indulgences? <laughs> they were a moneymaker for sure. Nancy? Well, apparently you could pay money to have absolution for your sins. Yes, you could buy absolution for your sins. You could buy it not just for yourself, remember? You could buy it for people who had died before. You could buy folks out of hell. You could buy folks more specifically out of uh, purgatory. They, they had all of this, and it's a moneymaker for the church. And Luther was upset by that. He felt that that was wrong. And he felt like the Rome, that Rome was just doing it, frankly, to pad their pockets. Which is exactly and precisely one of their motivations. Though I believe the devil was at work in primarily to blind the hearts of men. as they would not know this truth. And that idea of indulgences purchasing forgiveness is what led him to a study of what particular book you may know what book really caused luther to just really just kind of fight against rome it is romans it is the book of romans that is exactly what caused him and notice we've quoted a lot of romans because romans deals a lot with justification. Now, we don't see indulgences like we did back then. I don't even see, you don't even really see that within the Roman Catholic Church. But the idea behind it, the lie behind indulgences is still very prevalent as if it was being sold on the streets with trinkets. Is it not? If I can convince you you do this, this and this and you get to heaven, wouldn't you want that? That's I mean, think of every false faith when you boil it down, that's what, they're, that's what they're convincing folks. You have to do it this way or you're, you know, you're out. Anybody ever spoken much to a, a Mormon? I don't have as much Mormon influence here in Florida, but if you go up, you'll find a lot more Mormons. And uh, you can ask a Mormon, any Mormon, do you have your temple card? Are you a card-carrying member of the temple or your temple? And the truth is, within the Mormon systems of belief, you have to meet certain requirements to be allowed into the temple, and that you do get a card that allows you to be a card-carrying member, basically, of the temple, and they can take that away. And if they take that away, you have no hope of salvation. That's pretty tragic. Did you know within the Mormon faith that the folks, uh, couples, are married for eternity only in the temple? Did you know that? And there's, only, there's one that was just built in Indianapolis. There's also synagogues and the like you can go to, but there's specific temples. And at the ceremony, the husband is given the celestial name of his wife. 
She does not know that celestial name. Only he does. Because if she pleases him on earth, then when it gets to eternity, he can call out her celestial name and usher her into the presence of paradise. And if he doesn't call out that celestial name, tough for her. <laughs> Did you know for that reason that the hot, one of the highest numbers of suicides in America are Mormon wives? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> this, is, this is all the same lie continued to be repackaged. Now, just use the Mormon faith, but we could do other faiths as well. This is dangerous stuff. But if you are justified, you are forgiven. There's a word every Christian ought to know. And here's a really important one. Not only are you forgiven, you are made, you are made righteous. You are made righteous. But, but this justification is more than just a ticket to heaven. This justification means, I shouldn't say made, I shouldn't say made righteous. You are declared. That's, you guys are paying attention. I did that just to see if you're paying attention. Just kidding. You are right. You have a new righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And even that word made in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, as it pertains to the King James, really is the idea of a declaration. This is the his robes for mine part of the wonderful exchange that we sing about. Let's see if I can explain it to you somehow. Let, let, if we had one fist represent you in your sinful state... Every one of us, that fist would be blackened with sin, raised towards God in a defiant manner. And if you had the other, an open hand representing the forgiveness of God, what happens at the moment of salvation is Christ takes your sin and he puts it on Christ's account and he puts Christ's righteousness on yours. And your sin is covered and is gone forever. All that God can see when he looks at you is the covering of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I think you could argue then that justification is the greatest miracle of the Christian faith. By the way, that, that's an important part. So here's, here's your the, theological vocab for the day. And it's an answer to Job's question. Job 9 verse 2. How can a man be justified before God? And there is an answer. And there's only one answer. You can be right with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ who paid it all for you. You can close with this question. Have you ever been justified? And have you explained this? This is such an important word. It's kind of a jewel of a word. And we'll get to go through some other jewels of words as we go through this series on words every person wants to know. Other uh, comments, questions as we close this morning? Yes, here. Sure. Yes. That's exactly. That, yeah, that's exactly what that's like. He, I mean, 
That, that is the, the, the shock of the cross is not just the pain of the cross, but that the father turned, us, turned away from the son for that time. That, that's, I mean, I mean, the shock even of that moment and the skies went black at that moment and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Christ took our sins past and present and future at that time. He took them all on the cross. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? As we close, I want you to remember, not only is this a jewel of a word, but you could, I, I, I call it words every Christian ought to know. You could call it them's fighting words, right? These are words we, we, can't, we can't mess with justification. If you disagree with our definition of justification, we're, you're disagreeing with the Bible and what the Bible has to say. That's, so that is a fighting words. So... These are firm, these are planted, these are foundational to our faith. We'll look at some more words next week. And you can maybe start making your own list. I'd be, I'd be, I would genuinely be curious to see uh, what words we, you would like to go over. I, I have my own list, don't my, I, uh, but I'd, I'd just be curious if you've got some words there that we could go over. I'd love to go over them with you as well. Well, should we pray for the food? Or, no, I, you have some agenda. So I'm going to turn the board around for you, Paul. And I'll give you this microphone.